All right. Well, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel, if you would. The Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is found, if that one's not as familiar to you, it's found maybe roughly two-thirds of the way through your Bible. It's considered one of the major prophets. And, of course, we use that distinction, major and minor prophets, not based on their content, as if some have important things and some have less important things. That is simply a way of, de- of uh, describing the length of the prophet. The major prophets are the longer ones. The minor prophets are the shorter ones. So this is one of the major prophets, the book of Ezekiel. And um, here's my aim today. We're just going to simply take one specific theme of the book of Ezekiel and kind of mull it over today together. It is a theme that is represented by a repeated refrain, we might say, throughout the book, okay? I don't know what you think of, by the way, when you hear that word refrain. I don't know where your mind goes. Mine, my mind kind of goes to songwriting. Uh, if, you're, if a songwriter set out, sets out to write a song, depending on the style they're going for, they'll often write, we might call it a chorus, right, or a refrain, or some people will even call it a hook, if you're talking more popular terms, I guess. So a common kind of modern-day song structure would be verse 1, then a chorus, verse 2, then that same chorus, there's your repeated refrain, and then maybe a bridge, and then maybe a couple of choruses to finish the song out, or something close to that. That's a popular structure, but in that chorus, those repeated group of lyrics kind of demonstrate what the songwriter is intended to convey to us as this overall theme. It's usually in that chorus. Each verse might be different, but they'll all kind of be bound together in this theme by the chorus. And so when we look at the book of Ezekiel, we definitely have a chorus, a refrain, if you will. And the chorus goes something like this. It's a short one. It's a one-liner. Then they will know that I am the Lord. There it is. Then they will know that I am the Lord. With slight variations throughout, it might say, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Or, and then they will know that I am the Lord God. Or some slight variation thereof. And it's interesting, it's always... Every time that refrain happens, it's always the capital L-O-R-D, Lord, Yahweh. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. God says that over and over and over again through his prophet Ezekiel. And this book of Ezekiel is 48 chapters long. And you're going to read, if you read through Ezekiel... Hopefully you have before. If not, maybe set out to do that this week, perhaps, or the next couple weeks. If you read through Ezekiel, you are going to read that refrain, then they will know that I am the Lord. You will read that, get this, 68 times, 68 times. 
And sometimes the Lord is referring to um, the fact that judgment is coming. And he'll say something to the effect of, when I bring these judgments upon you, then you will know that I am the Lord. And then other times he promises some sort of blessing or some kind of kindness or some kind of mercy. And he says it again, when I restore you, then you will know that I am the Lord. You read this enough times and you begin to think, well, the Lord really wants us to know that he's the Lord, right? He wants us to know who he is. He wants us to know that he is God. So let's do this today. Let's look at a few examples of this first. If you would... While you're there in Ezekiel, I hope you found it. Turn to the book of, or excuse me, turn to chapter 5, sorry. And when you find it, just kind of keep your place there in chapter 5. And I want to give you just a little bit of background before we jump into a book that we haven't really been studying. So uh, let me do that, give you a minute to find it, and then I'll give you some background. Ezekiel's probably a book that... uh, we're probably a little bit less familiar with than some other books in the Bible. But Ezekiel is a prophet and a priest. And he was raised up by God to minister to Israel at a time when they were in exile in Babylon. And his ministry spanned from about 597 B.C. to 568 B.C. And if you're unsure what is meant when you hear that term exile, when it's referring to Israel, here's what it means in this context. God had judged his people Israel because they became idolatrous. They had gone after other gods, false gods. They had broken the very first commandment of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which was, have no other gods before me. And because of their, just their gross disobedience, God judged them in this way. He raised up their enemies against them to conquer them and to capture them. Those enemies of theirs were used by our sovereign God as kind of an extension of his hand or a sword in his hand, if you will. In this case, God judged them by raising up the Babylonians also called the Chaldeans, okay? So the Babylonians conquered Israel and captured them. And so when we read Ezekiel's prophecies all throughout these books, he's making it in the land of Babylon, far away from home, in a foreign place. And if you know uh, anything about Israel's history, being in exile would have been a very big deal, I mean, it would be a, a big deal for anyone, I suppose, but in the case of Israel, God had brought them out of slavery, right, from Egypt. He had given them a land that he promised Abraham way back in Genesis 15, and they enjoyed this fruitful and beautiful land given to them by Yahweh, their God, and then they become idolatrous in this land. They begin to Um, adopt the worship practices of all of their pagan neighbors, the very ones that God 
caused them to get out of there, and it was almost like God was using Israel as an extension of his hand of judgment against those wicked nations. And they were wicked nations, by the way, if you read up on what some of the things they were doing. But the very ones that God had judged through the Israelite conquest, Israel starts adopting their ways of worship and starts looking at and praying to false gods. They even go as far. This is one of the wicked things I was just talking about. They even go as far to begin to sacrifice their own children to false gods. And as always, sin has consequences, right? So here they are under the chastening hand of God in Babylon. On top of this, they were really, as a nation, not repentant still. And so God gives Ezekiel specific words to say to his people. You'll read that phrase a lot in Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. And through him, God says things like, Israel is a rebellious house. But I'm sending you to tell them what's coming upon them because of that rebellion. Exile is not the end of your punishment. There is more coming. And we get to chapter 5, where you hopefully have held your place there, and we read the first time we see this refrain in Ezekiel. This part of the chapter is talking about the fall, the coming fall of the great city of Jerusalem, the city where the temple was, the city where the worship of Yahweh was supposed to take place and all of the sacrifices and so forth. And we know that Jerusalem did fall, in fact, in 586 B.C., so all this that Ezekiel talked about, like every word of the Lord, came true 100%. And it all happened because of Israel's sin. And God even says in verse 6 of the chapter that's right in front of you that Jerusalem had rebelled against him more than the nations. Not only had they adopted the ways of their pagan neighbors, they had become more rebellious than even they were, more than the countries all around her says they had rejected God's law and his statutes. And he says in verse 8, Behold, I, even I, am against you. It's almost like I, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, the one who loves you, the one who saved you, I, even I, am against you. And I will execute judgments in your midst, in the sight of the nations. And it says, because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never done and the like of which I will never do again. And he goes on in chapter five from there, and I apologize if this is kind of graphic for children here today, but it's actually meant to be shocking. That's why it's here. It's almost like God is pressing our faces and perhaps Israel's faces right into the filth of their own sin and say, see what this does to you? 
the consequences are absolutely horrendous. It says in verse 10 that fathers are going to eat their children. Can you imagine that? And children will eat their fathers. He says, if any of them survive, they'll be scattered. He's talking about what would happen to Jerusalem when the armies would come against them and they would set up a siege. And the siege, of course, would be when you surround your enemy, you don't do a whole lot of fighting per se, you just cut them off from all comings and goings. You cut them off from food and supplies, so they'll eventually have to surrender because they starve. And God says it's going to be so bad that you're going to have to eat one another. That's an awful thought and picture to be put in that kind of position, isn't it? And then in verse 13, we read the first instance of the refrain that we're talking about today. Ezekiel 5, 13, after he's just talked about what's going to happen to Jerusalem, how he's going to judge it for their wickedness. They're more wicked than even their pagan uh, ones surrounding them. He says, thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself, and they shall know that I am the Lord that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Wow. That's, of course, referring to God's holy jealousy there, not a human, fallen kind of jealousy. God is jealous over his people in this sense. He has the appropriate desire to something that he alone has the right to. He alone deserves their worship. He will not share his glory with another, and yet they were just slapping him in the face by worshiping these false gods in the very city where God's temple was located. And so he says there, I will vent my fury upon them, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. Let's look at some more examples. That's just the first one in Ezekiel. I'll bring them up on the screen here if I can so that you don't have to spend time finding all of them. If you're taking notes, maybe you can write them down and read some of the surrounding context. But here's another example. We're just kind of doing a mini survey of the land real quick here. Ezekiel 11, 8 through 10 says this, You have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God. And I will bring you out of the midst of it, that is, out of the midst of their city, is what it's referring to, and give you into the hands of foreigners and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. There it is again. Ezekiel 12, 15 says, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I disperse them among the nations and scatter them among the countries. Ezekiel 14, 6 through 8 says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel 
who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself, and I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. We could go on and on for a while, reading example after example after example of, of Ezekiel receiving the word from the Lord saying, I'm going to judge you for your sin, and then you'll know that I am Yahweh. As a matter of fact, if you go through this book, and I counted, if my counting is correct, as I categorized, tried to categorize the instances of this refrain, God uses this refrain specifically in reference to judgment on Israel 25 times out of the 68 times. 25 times, I'm going to judge my people and they'll know that I am the Lord. Later on, there's a section in Ezekiel that begins a bunch of other prophecies, not against Israel, but against the wicked foreign nations around them as well. So God wasn't only judging his people. He was bringing judgment on the pagan nations as well. He does not show partiality. He judges all sin. And so beginning in chapter 25, we see God pronouncing judgments on people like the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites and the Philistines and the Egyptians and the people of Tyre and Sidon and so forth. And God uses that same refrain when he's talking about the judgments that he's going to bring on them. Just keep taking note of this because we're going to put it all together and draw some conclusions in just a minute. But right now, let's just continue looking at a few examples. He says against the Ammonites in chapter 25... This is just a paraphrase of what he says there. He says, basically, he says, I'm going to turn all your cities into a, a pasture for animals, <laughs> which wasn't a good thing. I'm just going to destroy your cities, and animals will live there. And then we read it, then you'll know that I am the Lord. In another case, he says against the people of Moab, verse 11 of chapter 25 it says, and I will execute judgments upon Moab, then they will know that I am the Lord. He says it against the Philistines, chapter 25, verse 17. I will execute great judgment on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Again, we go on and on with example after example of this. And if my count's correct, again... We have God using that same refrain against the wicked nations 22 times in the book of Ezekiel. So we're looking at these judgment passages, and maybe our mind begins to think, is this the only way that God's going to show that he's God through his judgment? Is that how he desires to reveal himself? Is that the only way? Well, the answer is no. We actually have 
21 other times where the Lord speaks of how he's going to bless his people and restore them and forgive them and so forth. Why? For the same reason, so that they will know that I am Yahweh, is what he says. Let's look at a few examples of that usage, and then we'll tie all this together. So listen to Ezekiel 34, 27, the second part of the verse. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hands of those who've enslaved them. Ezekiel 34, verses 29 and 30 says, And I will provide for them renowned plantations so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. Ezekiel. Excuse me, Ezekiel 20, verse 44 says this, And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Again, we go one after another like that as well, 21 times where God says, I'm going to show them who I am by helping them, by providing for them, by delivering them, by dealing with them in mercy, by multiplying their number, by raising them up from the graves, um, spiritually speaking, bringing them into their land again, and so on and so forth. So, having seen some examples of that, and I wish we could have... I wish we had time to go through all of them so that they'd all just be weighing on us with this mountain of evidence of how many times God says this, but we're going to have to let that suffice. What is God teaching us by repeating this line over and over again? Let me just give you three things I think he's showing us, and may God use this for his glory. Number one, God's motivation behind his activities is at least partly revelatory that the world might know who he is. So just to say it slightly different, the reason God does what he does in the world, at least partly, is to reveal who he is. And by revealing himself, he gets the glory that is due to him. Let me say it like this. When we read these statements and we see that God is saying that um, he's doing all these things so that people will know that he is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the only true and living God, we ought to conclude by that that, oh, God is not doing things in my life because he thinks the world revolves around me. Rather, he's doing things in my life, in your life, and really in the entire universe to demonstrate who he is, how great he is, because really everything revolves around him, right? Our minds are messed up. They think God is doing, and we even say it that way, God does things for us. There's nothing wrong with saying that, by the way. Don't, don't 
think that I'm saying that's a bad way of putting it. But it's just a perspective thing that God's almost doing everything for us. Really, everything he's doing is for him. (laughs) He's showing the world, and I'm part of the world and you're part of the world. He's showing the world who he is so that we will know that he is God. From him and through him and to him are all things. It says in Romans 11, to him be the glory forever. Amen. God wants to be known for who he is. So if that's the case, shouldn't that mean then that God's people should have that as their ultimate and primary concern? Meaning, our primary concern ought to be the sanctity of God's name and the glory of God in all things. You see what I'm saying? This is a perspective-altering truth, I think. We need to place ourselves in the right position in the grand scheme of things. Another way of saying it, we need to know our role, right? Why is God doing what he's doing? Why is God providing for his people seemingly at every turn? Why is God protecting you? Why is he guiding you? Why is he preserving you? Why is he holding you as one of his adopted children? I'm speaking to Christians right now. He's doing that so that you... And everyone around you might see and know that he is God. That he is the sovereign Lord of all. And that perspective changes everything. Let me try to illustrate this. Imagine that you are an extra in a movie. Has anybody ever been an extra in a movie, by the way? You see those little articles pop up every now and then. You know, they film Movies in Augusta sometimes, so I was just curious. Imagine that you're an extra in a movie, and your job as an extra is just to play the role of a person who happens, it's a big role, are you ready for it? You just happen to walk by in the background for about one second. You say, yes, I've landed a, a scene here. But it's a scene where the entire focus is on the main character of the movie. You'll even be out of focus back there. He'll be in focus, you'll be out of focus, and you'll just walk by. But imagine that instead of embracing your role as an extra, you think, man, I should really try to take this opportunity to show how good of an actor I am. I might get some some more acting gigs, right? So... Maybe you, the camera rolls and and maybe you walk by in the background of the scene and instead of just walking out of of the scene, you kind of stop and you're back there in the background just kind of, just kind of waving, you know, making a little scene for yourself. You're trying to bring the attention to yourself. The director says, cut. What is this guy doing back there? Can we get somebody that knows their role back there. Hey, buddy, the story isn't about you. 
It's about this guy, his life, this main character. That's what we kind of do if we live as if we are the center of the attention in God's universe. It's like we're the blurry guy in the background who doesn't know his role, waving our hands and dancing around, totally detracting from the shot. The story is all about him, right? We're just role players that that pass by on the screen for a second or two. We are to function in a very subordinate, supporting role to tell the story of God. And I think when we wrap our minds around how we're supposed to fit into this grand scheme, it actually changes everything about how we live and how we view what God is doing. Entitlement goes right out the window, right? Does God care about us and love us and and know all the intimate details of our lives? Yes, absolutely he does, but that isn't meant to indicate how important we are. That's meant to indicate how awesome he is. He's not asking us to come up front and share the limelight with him and become the main character. He's asking us to play a supporting role in the story of Yahweh and how he saved a rebel race from destruction for his own glory. And as we embrace that proper role, as we see our place relatively insignificant in the grand scheme, as we see our place, we actually begin to see how gracious it is of God that we benefit at all in this story. I mean, how did we get to be the beneficiaries of anything? in the story of God. It's not because we're special. We're extras. If we're keeping that movie analogy. But the fact of the matter is, the main character has loved us nobodies to the point that he's willing to make us part of his family. And a commentator by the name of Daniel Block wrote a commentary on Ezekiel. He makes this helpful comment. I wanted to read it. He says, the fundamental problem with most of us is not deficient self-esteem, but an inadequate divine esteem. If we submit ourselves to God, recognizing that ultimately He operates for His own namesake, and that his investment in us relates to agendas far greater than ourselves, then we will treasure the grace with which he reaches out to us, end quote. I think that is a very perceptive thought. God has an agenda in his world, and it's ultimately to manifest his own glory And the fact that sinners like us are shown any kindness or mercy at all in this grand drama ought to just blow our minds. And it will if we realize this story ain't about us. 
If it is about us, well, then maybe we do deserve some of the credit and some of the blessings that God's given us. After all, we're kind of co-stars of the show, right? But it's not about us. It's about Him. And to think that the extras get treated with this kind of treatment makes us go, how did I get here? How does a person like me become the recipient of God's grace? Why me, Lord? It's extremely humbling to think this way. So Christians, and and even non-Christians hearing me today, let me encourage you to place yourself appropriately in the story, okay? Recognize what your role is in the cosmic storyline. Don't dance behind the main character like the blurry man fool back there who tries to take over the scene, right? It isn't about you. It isn't about me. It's about God and what he's done through Christ. So that whole point was that God's divine activities are constantly revealing to us and the whole world who he is. The next two points are kind of related, and they're worded uh, very similarly. So number two, divine judgment reveals who God is in a way that brings his holiness into sharp focus. Why would Ezekiel or God say through Ezekiel, why would he say over and over again that he's going to be known through his judgment? How does his judgment and his wrath reveal who he is? Well, that's a pretty simple answer. His judgment and his wrath against sin reveals to us and the world that he is holy. He's not like your moody coworker that you've all probably had at some point, who they're just mad for you don't even know why. They're just mad today. They're just mad, no reason. God isn't like that. God's anger is a purposeful, settled, not wild anger against sin. It is a settled opposition and righteous anger against all rebellion against his goodness. We're told about God's holiness all over the Bible. One major one that comes to mind, maybe the first one that comes to your mind, is Isaiah chapter 6. There's this vision of God's throne, and these angels are crying out around God's throne, this triple word doxology. It's been called the trisagion. They don't say, love, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. What do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He is a holy God. In one way, his holiness is made manifest. When it's made obvious, when it's brought to the forefront, is when he punishes sin. If he's perfectly holy and righteous, how could he ever let sin slide right? He won't. To do so would be totally contrary and inconsistent with his own character. 
And so it makes a lot of sense, I think, when we read it in that light, to read in Ezekiel over and over and over again that when I judge you, you will know that I am the Lord. And there's a sense of you will know that I am the holy God that you're accountable to. Isn't that what this judgment, isn't that what any of God's judgment signals to us in one sense at least? That you and I and whoever is being judged by God, that they are accountable to God. When you read of various forms of judgment in Scripture, whether it's judgment against Israel or the Egyptians or the Edomites or whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah or whether it's a whole world of sinners drowning in a flood. Whenever we read any of those past judgments, it should cause us to think, God is the judge. We are accountable to him, right? He made us. We are bound to obey him. We are obligated to obey him. We ought not seek the smiles of men, but instead the smile of God. And then when we read of uh, coming, future judgment, for instance, in the book of Revelation and other places in the New Testament, we read a lot about that. This isn't just an Old Testament theme. There is a judgment that's coming on everyone who does not savingly believe in Jesus Christ. And so... Just to think about that right now in this moment, I just have to say to you, flee the wrath to come. Do it today. Just like the, the flood that we've been reading about in our scripture reading in Genesis, just like there was an ark of safety for Noah and his family, there is an ark of safety as well for the flood of judgment that's coming on this world. That ark of safety is Jesus Christ. God sent him to save people like you and I who have broken his law over and over and over again. And his message to us, to you, to everyone is to repent and believe the gospel. Trust Christ to save you. Trust him to do for you what you can't do for yourself, which is to be perfectly holy as he is holy. Can you do that? No. But God will give you his holiness as a gift. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's all because of what Christ has done. This, is, this will be, when a person places their faith in Christ, he gives them a robe of righteousness. We talk about that a lot. You, you just go from rags to riches before God when you put your faith in Christ. And the robe that you have on won't be a piecemeal quilt made up of God's goodness and his holiness and his merit and Christ's merit and the other saints' merit and your own merit. It is a seamless robe of Christ's righteousness gifted to you by God when you trust in his son. So... <clears throat> These statements in Ezekiel, by God, declaring that his judgments are intended to reveal that he is God, that he is Lord, it should just point us, if you don't know what to do with them, if nothing else, you say, this points me to how holy God is. 
He is holy. I fall woefully short according to God's standard. I am in severe need of forgiveness myself. I'm in severe need of merit before God because I don't have any. And Christ provides my merit for me. So when I read this as a Christian, I say, look at how holy God is and look at how he promises to deal with me in Christ. What holiness he must have given me then. Amazing. Then thirdly, worded very similar, but divine mercy reveals who God is in a way that brings his grace into sharp focus. So just like God chooses to reveal himself through judgment, he also chooses to reveal himself through his grace and his mercy. He's not a one-sided God who's all wrath and anger. He's a God full of compassion and tender mercy. I love Ezekiel 20, 44, which is one of the examples that I shared with you earlier. It said, and you shall know that I am the Lord when... I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds. He doesn't deal with us according to our evil ways or our corrupt deeds. There wasn't anything, by the way, that Israel did to deserve God's mercy. Everything that God did for them was for his own name, when he showed them grace and kindness, it was actually in opposition to what they deserved, right? And amazingly, that's how he deals with us. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? The psalmist says, Psalm 130, verse 3. If you're planning on standing before God, clothed in your own iniquity, you will be condemned. But if we stand before God clothed in the righteous robe given to us by God through Christ, we'll be saved, we'll be viewed as perfectly holy. And the good news of the gospel is that all who repent and come to Christ, submit to his lordship, trust him, he doesn't deal with you according to your sins. He deals with you according to Christ's merit and what he earned for you. You might say it this way, <clears throat> Ezekiel's refrain is the refrain of the gospel. God says, I've sent my son to you to atone for your sins. He's my word to you also. He's what I want you to know about me. He's the image of the invisible God. Fullness of deity dwells in him. And here's what I sent him to do. Look to him, trust in him. And when you do, you'll know who I am. Then you'll know that I am the Lord. It's the refrain of the gospel. So to my brothers and sisters here in Christ, the hero of the story has made us to be beneficiaries in his story, beneficiaries of his grace. The story is not about us, but somehow we get eternal life at the end of it. Praise God that he also reveals himself to be a God of grace, right? <clears throat> Let me close with this. Several times in Ezekiel, God says things like, I'm going to cleanse them, 
and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So this God, who has revealed himself to be holy through his judgments and gracious because of his kindness in the face of sin, desires to cleanse his people and be with his people. It's not like, you'll know who I am, but you're going to stay over there somewhere. He says, no, they'll be my people. I will be their God. I'll be with them. And it's just a joy to read when you come to the end of the Bible. In the 21st chapter of Revelation, verse 3, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That is what's coming for every saved person. This holy God is also a God of mercy and grace in Christ. And then maybe I think we will have then, when we're in heaven, We'll have the true fulfillment of Ezekiel's refrain because then we'll know that he is the Lord like we've never been able to fathom before. Then we'll truly know this is Yahweh. This is the Lord our God. He's everything he said and more. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this refrain that we see in Ezekiel that can teach us so much. The refrain that highlights not only your holiness, Lord, but your salvation. Not only your judgment, but your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you have desired to reveal yourself to us in these ways. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the ultimate fulfillment of this refrain. You intend your people to know you and to be like you in the eternity that is to come. You intend, to make, you intend to make it known to all creation, to all the spiritual powers, every onlooker, that you are kind to your people. You say, Lord, in, in Ephesians 2, that in the coming ages you're going to set out to show the immeasurable riches of your grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Who are we to receive such a gift? Give us a measure of gratitude appropriate for that gift, Lord. Make our lives be lives of obedience to you. And thank you that when we sin, we have a mediator, Jesus Christ, who ever lives to make intercession for us. And Lord, as we take these elements together in the Lord's Supper, just renew our joy in you, renew our satisfaction in what you've done, and help your people, Lord, to be satisfied in their new identity, the identity of being in Christ and part of God's family. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.